The suspicious ballot box was found in the house of a local activist in San Francisco. It had a false bottom, which could allow fake votes to mix with real ones. Panic spread, and voters across 1850s America worried about the legitimacy of elections. A New York inventor came up with a way to make voting more transparent. Make the ballot boxes literally transparent. Samuel C. Jolly's design had a lockable wooden frame encasing a clear glass sphere which had a slot for voters to post their ballots. Jolly thought that if everyone could see what was going in and out, it would be easier to trust in the process. It worked. The glass ballot boxes were used widely throughout the rest of the 19th century, and transparent ballot boxes are still found all over the world today. America now deploys more advanced machines at the polls, and lies about some of these voting machines were at the root of the lawsuit Fox News has just settled for $787.5 million. I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, will the Dominion lawsuit change Fox News? It was set to be a blockbuster trial. But as it was due to start, Fox News settled a mammoth defamation lawsuit over its coverage of the 2020 presidential election. Dominion voting systems had accused the network of knowingly spreading the lie that its machines somehow rigged the election by awarding votes to Joe Biden. Defamation cases are notoriously hard to win in America, and it was remarkable that the lawsuit got so far. What does the case tell us about how the media works in the US? With me this week to talk about Fox News, its influence on the right in America, and whether the network is likely to change its ways over the next couple of years, are Charlotte Howard, this week coming to us from London, and Idris Kaloun, who's in Washington. Charlotte, how are you doing? How are you finding London? It's been beautiful weather. I've had a very productive week. I saw some old friends, including my friend Peter, a very loyal Czech listener. So it's been lovely. How are you, Idris? I'm doing well. I am jealous that I'm not in London with you guys. I'll be there in a few weeks, so I guess Prito and I can hang out then. Um, but otherwise, things are good. I just watched, uh, I think you guys might have too, the Starship uh, launch, which ended in a blaze of glory. I watched that with the Economist's in-house rocket nerds here. I think Charlotte was in a meeting somewhere else, but Idris, we were texting while that was going on. It was pretty extraordinary, wasn't it? It didn't go entirely according to plan, but it was not a total failure either. My favorite bit was the commentary when the rocket started doing backflips about 30 kilometers up in the air, and uh, the SpaceX engineer said, this is not a nominal situation. What are you texting during a rocket launch to each other? Like, this is cool. Hey, buddy, are you watching the rocket launch? This feels like two fifth grade boys talking about it was, rockets. It was emoji heavy, the conversation, yeah. in fairness. There weren't that many words. There are a lot of rocket emojis and, you know, star emojis and that kind mm. of thing. So that's Adrian's night. That's the usual sort of form in which we communicate. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of things going up in flames, this was, of course, the week where Fox News settled its lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems after a lot of speculation that it would settle, it wouldn't settle, the trial would go ahead, but not before. There were some incredibly embarrassing revelations for Fox in pre-trial disclosure. Kenneth Werner has been covering the case for The Economist. I spoke to him earlier this week, and he took me back to the aftermath of the 2020 election when the trouble for Fox all started. So it all really starts for Fox on election night. Uh, Fox is the first news outlet to call Arizona, which is a swing state for Joe Biden. Trump was incensed by it. And so then over the next days, Trump's team is making a lot of allegations of voter fraud. And uh, Fox reporters are challenging those allegations. Trump is really mad about this. Um, His supporters are really mad. And a few days after the election, he starts retweeting other people who are saying, ditch Fox and instead watch these other channels that are airing his allegations. And those are Newsmax and uh, One America News. And so these are kind of very small cable news channels. And viewers really do change the channel. And Fox's viewership goes down significantly. Newsmax's triples. So Fox is in effect punished by its audience for getting that Arizona call right and then is under pressure from some smaller, scrappier competitors who appear to be doing a better job of giving Donald Trump's diehard fans what what they want to hear, right? So then Fox has to respond. Yeah. So Fox really freaks out. I mean, internally, executives are sending around these reports showing that among Fox viewers, its favorability has plummeted. One executive says the network needs to go on war footing. People there are very, very nervous. And the CEO of Fox News, uh, Suzanne Scott, says, listen, enough with this quote-unquote smug reporting of our reporters who are challenging Trump's claims of fraud. We need to, she says, quote-unquote, plant flags to show our viewers that we are listening to them and that we respect them. And the particular flag that gets planted here is that Fox gives a lot of airtime to Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, members of Donald Trump's sort of campaign legal defense team after he's lost. And they spin this incredible story about how Dominion's voting machines have been somehow rigged. There's some connection to Hugo Chavez, the dead dictator of Venezuela, and had these machines not been manipulated by this leftist international conspiracy, Donald Trump actually would have won, right? Yeah. So Trump has these really kind of nutty lawyers, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. They start filing lawsuits in various states that had gone for Biden that were very close. And they're making all these kinds of baseless voter fraud claims. And a lot of them have to do with Dominion, as you just laid out. They go on Fox for these really kind of softball interviews They'll go on and a host will say, Sydney, I hear there are, are voting irregularities. Tell me about that. And Sydney Powell will say her spiel. And then the host will say, wow, those are very serious allegations. I, I look forward to hearing more about them or we'll have to see how those are played out in, in court. So there's no real attempt to fact check them. And this is all in spite of the fact that Fox News has a fact-checking department. It's called the Brain Room. And they were circulating memos saying, 
everything about Dominion is false. And the pre-trial disclosures show pretty clearly, I think, that a lot of people at Fox, the senior executives, some of the anchors, knew that this stuff that they were broadcasting was false, right? And that's where quite a lot of the juicy detail comes. The trial then was meant to start this week on Monday with jury selection. Then it was delayed by the judge. There was a rumor that Fox was going to settle with Dominion. And then it looked like the trial would go ahead. And and then the settlement happened. Yeah, exactly. So the settlement happened literally at the last minute. The jury had been seated. We were all kind of waiting with bated breath for opening arguments to start. The lawyers disappeared for a while, and then they came back saying that they had a settlement. They settled for $788 million, which is about half what Dominion had been asking for. And uh, there are a lot of reasons why the settlement came about. I mean, defamation lawsuits are really, really, really hard to win in America. And Dominion had a really strong case because of these contemporaneous emails and text messages that had come out in the filings. Uh, But you never know with a jury. Juries are unpredictable. Yeah, it got a huge settlement. Yeah, so this settlement suits both parties, really. For Dominion, which is a very small company by revenue, it gets an absolutely enormous payout. And for News Corp and Fox, they avoid the embarrassment of Rupert Murdoch, Tucker Carlson, other senior figures in the company having to appear at a witness stand. And $788 million seems to be worth paying for Fox to avoid that further embarrassment, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this trial was going to last five or six weeks. Rupert Murdoch, who's 92 years old, was going to be called to testify. Fox really wanted to avoid that. And Kenneth, had this case actually gone to trial, Fox wasn't going to take it lying down. Can you walk us through the case for the defense? Yeah, so Fox denied all of Dominion's allegations. They said, uh, listen, our... Hosts were reporting on newsworthy statements made by the outgoing president and his lawyers. Every news network was reporting on these. And furthermore, Dominion wouldn't have been able to prove actual malice by the people who published the statements. So the fact that senior executives were saying Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani are kooks full of BS, that that didn't matter. What you actually have to do is prove that the hosts who aired the kind of 20 statements that Dominion had set upon as being problematic, that the hosts who aired them and the line producers directly responsible for them had to have known that these were false. And in their depositions, those people all said, you know, I I didn't know. I was keeping an open mind or these were very serious allegations. They were troubling and uh, I wasn't sure. So, Charlotte, as Kenneth outlined there, to understand what happened in this story, you have to go back to 2020 and really election night. Fox gets its Arizona call right. Its audience then gets furious. Fox reporters initially report that the election fraud claims are rubbish. And then viewers start to desert Fox and the company gets in a panic. Yeah. So this fear of losing out to Newsmax or One America News, it wasn't abstract because Trump was mad that Fox had called Arizona for Biden. And he told his supporters to switch to other networks. And that seemed to be having a real impact. So if you look at Kennett's piece in this week's issue, he has an interesting statistic in there, which is that about two weeks after the election, Newsmax's primetime audience had tripled and Fox's had sunk by 37 percent. I mean, that's a really big drop in a short amount of time. And so that gave a strong incentive to Fox executives to try to respond to this. And their natural instinct for years had been to give the audience what it wants. 
that's somewhat in conflict with being a news organization when what the audience wants isn't the truth. So they were in this position where they were really in quite a panic. And the model that they had pursued for years was kind of fundamentally being challenged because you couldn't fudge it in the way that they had in the past. There was something that just wasn't true. And that's what the audience wanted to hear. And then I also just think People probably know this, but it just is worth dwelling on again how bizarre that press conference was that Rudy Giuliani gave with Sidney Powell right after. I mean, you'll remember he had this sort of black trickle going down his cheek from what seemed to be temporary hair dye. And the ideas that he was supporting or that there was this evil campaign to switch votes from Trump to Biden and it was supported by I guess sort of what you might think of as the great trinity of evil leftists. So the Clinton Foundation, people attached to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and George Soros. So it was just very, very strange. And that was at the root of this. And Fox took Giuliani and Sidney Powell and just put them on air again and again. Yeah, it was so surreal. <laughs> um, one thing that is so interesting about this case is that, one, defamation cases are really hard to win. Two, they don't usually settle for this much money. And I think that what we're seeing here is the interaction of a few things. One is that Fox actually really messed up, and they clearly thought they were going to lose this case. That's why they settled for so much. But they didn't settle fast enough. So the American legal system, unlike the French legal system, allows lots of discovery. So you can root around and see what sorts of things your uh, legal opponents have been up to and been saying in private. You can depose all of their executives. And uh, they came away with a real treasure trove of uh, private utterances. You know, people have often wondered whether Tucker Carlson believes all the things that he says, given, you know, his past reputation as a reasonable conservative and his private text messages just clearly demonstrate that it's all a bit of a show. Some of them, I, I mean, there are just a lot of very good quotes, but some of them are, we are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. I hate him passionately. Um, <laughs> he's a demonic force, a destroyer, but he's not going to destroy us. I've been thinking about this every day for four years. Um, and he just gave a very nice sit down interview to Tucker. So, you know, the world is, is restored to its order. Yeah, it was a sort of hour-long cuddle, that interview that uh, Tucker Carlson did with Donald Trump recently. I agree, that's the most shocking thing about this trial. And maybe Fox has been around for a long time, and we're a little bit inured to um, the way it operates. But just the willingness to say one thing in private and another in public is still really breathtaking. The other thing that struck me as really interesting is that you see in the course of these disclosures, Fox trying to lead its audience in a particular way, right, away from Trump. And you can look at several instances over the past couple of years. More recently, Fox has tried to give DeSantis a lot of airtime and give Trump less. And yet it seems like the audience won't necessarily be led uh, in the direction some people at Fox would like it to go. And it's a bit like the situation the Republican Party found itself in in 2016, right, in the sense that you had slices of the party elite, most of the donors, etc., who really didn't want Trump to be the nominee. And yet there wasn't that much they could do about it. And then they wound up just throwing in their lot with him. I, I think also it demonstrates something, a misunderstanding that a lot of people have about the way that the modern media in America works, which is that they conceive news 
bias as a consequence of journalist bias or editor bias or even you know funder bias and a lot of the times as fox demonstrated the audience capture is actually the stronger dynamic where audiences not only have a clear worldview that they're habituated to but if they don't get it there are now many many alternatives that they can go to the startup cost for creating a media outlet is just vanishingly low um and so i think uh you know, news outlets, and that includes those on the left, or more aligned at the left, have to basically pay service to uh, its audience. Otherwise, they get trapped like Fox did. And I think you already see on the right, there are, you know, for example, Steve Bannon's podcast is probably the most important piece of, uh, of non-mainstream news uh, at the moment, uh, including Fox News and the mainstream for that comparison. But there are all sorts of alternatives that people have at the moment. Uh, and that just makes it so much harder to change, like I think Fox has tried to do unsuccessfully. Yes, and that insight that the best business model in mass media is just to follow your audience is key to the founding of Fox. And we'll go back and look at how that happened in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist. If you have one already, then thank you. You make so much of what we do here possible. And if you don't have one, then you can get a 30-day digital trial by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. Idris and Charlotte, what in your view can our listeners enjoy in particular if they take up that offer? So this week we have a huge amount of coverage on artificial intelligence and ChatGPT, and I have just been waiting for this set of stories to come out because I think that our science and business writers and our tech writers are just the best minds on this, and I've been wanting to read their comprehensive take. So if you want to really understand how this works, we have a bundle of science stories that explain it. It's worth a read, and I think sort of the best thing out there to get your head around what is a huge and fascinating question. And Idris, how about you? That was going to be my answer, I think. That, well, you uh, can just say the same thing. I will say the same. I, I thought it was really good. If you want to understand what language learning models are and how they work, uh, we'd walk you through it. I think we walk you through why you shouldn't be worried about a Terminator-like scenario. So I think it's, it's one of the best uh, pieces of coverage on the issue that I've seen. Yes, I've read the package as well, and I endorse this message. Economist.com slash podcast offer is the link for that trial subscription. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. News Channel. This is Fox News Now. All the news you need in 15 minutes. Good morning, everyone. Fox News launched in October 1996 with a plan to set itself apart from its competitors. Well, we announced when we started that we would be fair and balanced. That we <coughs> fair and balanced was the now rather surprising slogan CEO and founder Roger Ailes gave the fledgling channel. A large percentage of people in this country believe the news is biased. Most of them believe it's biased to the left. About 60% think it's biased to the left, about 20% think it's biased to the right. But in any case, what they think is that <clears throat> a lot of news puts the spin on things. And what we decided is we'd cover it, and if it you know, had a left-leaning tilt to the story, we'd introduce the conservative point of view. If it had a right-leaning tilt, we'd introduce the, uh, the liberal point of view. But I think that we probably do put news in a little better context than some. Ailes had been a TV producer in the 1960s and in 1967 encountered Richard Nixon behind the scenes of a talk show. The interesting media challenge was everybody said, this guy can't get elected because of television. And I thought I knew television pretty well. 
and I was 28 years old. And uh, I said, nobody's ever going to get elected again without it. Nixon hired Ailes to make him more telegenic, and his television nows helped elect Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush too. So when Rupert Murdoch decided to launch a 24-hour news channel in the mid-90s, it was to Ailes he turned. Ailes built Fox News into the most-watched cable news network in America. He'd grown up poor, digging ditches in Ohio, and instinctively knew how to appeal to white, working-class voters disaffected with the liberal elites and their political correctness. Ailes' brand of conspiracy-driven news and opinion later found a perfect foil. Bold, brash, and never bashful, the Donald now makes his voice loud and clear every Monday on Fox. My message is a better message than anybody else. Monday mornings with Trump on Fox & Friends. Donald Trump was popular with Fox viewers, and seeing a ratings winner, in 2011, Ailes gave him a weekly guest slot on the morning talk show Fox & Friends. It was around this time that Trump first mooted a presidential run. They give you a certificate of live birth, which anybody can get. Now, you know, this guy either has a birth certificate or he doesn't. On Fox News, Donald Trump had a platform to peddle lies about Barack Obama's birth certificate. And I didn't think this was such a big deal, but I will tell you, it's turning out to be a very big deal. Do you think he was born in this country? I, I am really concerned, and I will tell you... Acquaintances for years through the Manhattan media scene there was a synergy between Ailes's and Trump's worldviews. The conservative populism that Fox viewers ate up would eventually propel Trump to the presidency. Uh, we are joined right now. It is our great pleasure to welcome the President of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, calling in. Mr. Trump, good morning, good morning to you. Good morning. Good to have you on Fox & Friends today. Uh, as you said, Throughout his term in office, Trump would call in to his old TV home, Fox and Friends. And we'll do it more often, but I have a lot of fun doing it. And you know what? The nice part, we get the, we get the true word out. And here's the true word. Our country is doing great. But in 2016, just as Trump's star became ascendant, Ailes's was plummeting. All right, more on that breaking news we started to tell you about before the break. Roger Ailes, the architect of the Fox News Channel, just now resigning as chairman and CEO of Fox News Channel. As Trump was confirmed as the Republican candidate at the convention in Cleveland that summer, Ailes was forced out at Fox amid allegations of sexual harassment from female colleagues. The following year, he died at the age of 77. Barack Obama once called Roger Ailes the most powerful man in America. That power faded, but without Fox and without Ailes, Donald Trump might never have got such a powerful hold over Republican primary voters, a hold which he still retains. I was chatting to our sound engineer, Nico, before we recorded this, and he pointed out that there was a story that Ailes liked to tell about how he met Richard Nixon, which was Ailes was working on a TV show at the time called The Mike Douglas Show, and Nixon was a guest. But that day when Nixon, who was former vice president, was due to be on, they also had a belly dancer who went by the name of Little Egypt. And Little Egypt came with an extremely large live boa constrictor as part of the act. So there was this huge snake in the green room of the TV show. And then Richard Nixon showed up and they had a panic about where they were going to put him so that he wouldn't be in the same room as the boa constrictor. And Ailes said, well, well, maybe you should just show him into my office. And so that was how Roger Ailes and Richard Nixon 
met, basically, because of the boa constrictor. So it's just a butterfly effect story. Had there not been the boa constrictor in that day, maybe Ailes wouldn't have met Nixon, maybe we wouldn't have got Fox, all sorts of things might not have happened. Anyway, Idris, Fox sometimes seems to have this almost kind of mythic power on the American right. But if you look at its audience numbers, it averages a few million viewers a night, two million viewers, three million viewers, whereas 74 million people voted for Donald Trump in 2020. So do you think the effect that Fox has um, on the right and on Republican primary voters is overstated? Um, I don't think it's overstated. I think it is arguably the intellectual center of the Republican Party because the previous institutions who might have made that claim, like the National Review, Weekly Standard, all these places have largely faded. The ideas that are promulgated within the Republican Party are largely downstream of Fox News. And I think Tucker Carlson is probably the most significant thinker on the right at the moment. You know, the the old guard of like Bill Kristol and George Will, um, I don't think is as relevant as someone like Tucker Carlson. And there is also a lot of pretty interesting political science on the exact persuasion effect of Fox News. There was a famous study done in 2007 of the effect that Fox News had on voter behavior, and it found actually a nifty natural experiment where they looked at um, whether or not the channel number was higher and people were randomly more likely to be on. And they found that among non-Republicans who watched Fox News, a significant percentage of them, something like uh, 8%, uh, some specifications higher, actually became Republican voting. They estimate that in the 2000 election, Fox News alone could have accounted for 0.4 to 0.7% of the shift, which is, you know, in that election, pretty significant. Later studies of media polarization have demonstrated also that exposure to Fox News increases uh, measures of partisanship, as you might expect. I think that the rise of Fox News sort of showed the advancement of two ideas in media. One you saw back from the early days of Murdoch building up his media empire in the U.S. is that he bought American papers starting the 1970s, including the New York Post in 1976. And he turned it into from something that was kind of boring into something that was sort of irresistibly salacious. And the idea that you'd have news that was really entertaining in kind of a naughty way was an idea that he really clung on to. You know, I think about that famous New York Post headline when Elliot Spitzer was linked to a prostitution ring. The Post headline was, ho no, which is just very good, you know. And so it was one that he made it really entertaining. And then two, the unmet need in, in TV that he really saw was that there was no conservative TV network. And so he saw this unmet need in the market and he he filled it with news in the day and opinion shows at, at night. And you saw this big rise in Fox's popularity in the aftermath of 9-11 and then with the Tea Party in 2010. And there was this cycle of responding to viewers' discontent, which in turn fed it. And it's not really an echo chamber in my mind. It's more like a really depressing snowball. And you had then this phenomenon of within the the company, which you see in the extraordinary emails and texts from Suzanne Scott, who's the head of Fox News, about understanding the audience. There's all this talk about understanding the audience and what they want. And understanding your audience, your customer, meeting an unmet need, that's very important for any business, and particularly if you're selling soap or soda or razors. But when you're selling news, it's a little different. And you saw the limit of that logic in the Trump era, where they could always kind of push it before. But when you had someone who was really just telling a lie, 
What do you do with that when the audience wants to hear the lie, but you claim to be a news organization? And so I just think that this is sort of the apex of that. And I'm not sure that much changes now. I mean, if you think of big settlements going back when other companies have wrongdoing, I think about pharma, which I used to cover. Merck, you know, would have a huge settlement for Vioxx that they concealed the risks of a drug and then they pay a big settlement, and the drug also is withdrawn, right, from the market. Has Fox withdrawn its product from the market? I don't, you know, I don't think so, right? So I'm just not really sure how much this changes. And I think that's part of why you see Fox hosts wanting to be put out of the situation. You know, it's much easier for them if they have a DeSantis. It, it's harder to keep doing this when you have someone like Trump. And uh, as long as Trump's in the picture, though, I think they're going to keep finding themselves in this bind. Yeah, I think that's right. There's no chance that this bankrupts Fox News. The settlement, as large as it is, it's $787 million, wouldn't even wipe out last year's profit margin. And it is smaller in comparison to the company's overall revenue, uh, which last year was $14 billion. I, you know, the risk is that this incentivizes other companies like Smartmatic, which was another voting machine company to also uh, try to prove uh, defamation lawsuits. And, you know, if these start to rack up, then maybe it'll force Fox to have a bit of a reckoning. But at the moment, although Fox had to admit that some of the statements that it broadcast was false, they importantly did not apologize and I think are not planning to dwell on this moment too much longer. I think you're probably right, but I just want to put the counter argument. I mean, people often accuse Fox, I think rightly, in my view, of pandering for profit. But the profit part is important there, right? And if you do something that wipes out half your annual profit because you made something up and you got sued for defamation, then I wonder if next time around it makes it slightly harder. You know, say Donald Trump is running again in 2024, say we have a similar situation. I would have thought Fox might pause a little bit before repeating this mistake. I mean, the company presumably has libel insurance and the insurers will have coughed up a big chunk of this, but it'll be much harder to cover Fox for defamation and libel in the future, I would have thought, now that the insurers know quite how careless the journalism is and quite how willing senior executives are just to fib to the audience if it's what the audience wants to hear. So I agree with you, essentially, that we're not about to see Fox transform as a result of this. But I wonder if it will make a bit of a difference on the margin. Fox is also just incredibly unusual as a channel if you look at other Western European democracies. And we'll be back in a moment to ask why the American media in general is so unusual when it comes to this question of defamation. Ronell Anderson-Jones is a professor of law at the University of Utah. I spoke to her earlier this week about why American defamation law is so unusual and what effect that has on the media in America. Most defamation scholars and commentators in this country agree that this was one of the strongest, if not the strongest, uh, defamation cases that we have seen in the entirety of uh, U.S. defamation law history. These cases where the constitutional bar is so staggeringly high, uh, where it's not enough to show that uh, the journalist was sloppy or that they were biased uh, or even that they were inaccurate. You have to go the distance to show this state of 
mind evidence. It's a very difficult thing to prove up. Uh, Dominion here came the closest uh, to anything that I've ever seen um, in my years of studying it of amassing a body of evidence that seemed to go to knowing falsity. Um, That kind of powerful evidence to put before a jury, I think, probably had Dominion in a place of some confidence. Uh, It was just a question of whether I think the settlement number got so high that they genuinely just couldn't walk away and take the risk. And I think for non-Americans looking at the evidence against Fox, the evidence that came out in the pretrial stuff, it just looks so strong, they would say, well, this is an open and shut case, surely. But I think conversely, for a lot of Americans, uh, American listeners, they might not realize the extent to which America is an outlier when it comes to libel law and defamation law compared with other Western democracies. Is that because of the First Amendment? Or is it because of you know the case law here, particularly New York Times v. Sullivan in the 60s, which set out those standards that you had to show you know, actual malice? Or is it some combination of the two? Or is it some other thing? Yes, it's a combination of the two. Um, New York Times versus Sullivan uh, is the watershed First Amendment case from uh, the United States Supreme Court in which essentially uh, the Supreme Court constitutionalized defamation law. And so the court said in Sullivan, we will, instead of embracing the model that most of the rest of the world uses for defamation, where a plaintiff can win simply by showing uh, that it wasn't true, that they were identified and that it harmed their reputation, the Supreme Court here said, we'll add this actual malice standard. It's a very weird term to use (laughs) for what it actually means. I think most people think of the word malice as meaning something like ill will, right? Uh, Sort of malicious intent. In this First Amendment space, what it means is a state of mind, knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. So, and it's knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the spe- for the truth of the specific statements that were made. And I think that's the piece that um, explains the gap that you've just described between what seems like a really powerful body of evidence of knowing falsity and this kind of very specific claim that Dominion had to make here. Dominion had to show uh, that the specific people who were responsible for creating these specific statements about Dominion and airing those statements about Dominion knew that those specific statements weren't true. And it's actually quite difficult uh, to connect all of those dots. That's why we were looking at a five to six week trial. Part of what uh, Dominion would have had ahead of it was this sort of heavy lift of linking up all of the statements of um, seeming knowing falsity to the decision to say the things about Dominion that were said. I want to change tack a little bit. And when, when Donald Trump was president, he signaled an interest in revisiting American libel defamation law to make it easier to sue news organizations for things that he thought were false. And lots of liberals in America found that to be an alarming prospect and people in favor of free speech generally also did. Clarence Thomas in the past, I think, has signaled some openness to revisiting NYT v. Sullivan. And yet, you know, here with the Dominion case, you have Fox relying on the same precedent to defend its publication of some stuff that seemed completely outlandish. Do you think that American lawmakers should take another look at this? Or do you think actually, you know, the Dominion and Fox settlement is, is proof that America has set the bar in about the right place and the system pretty much works as it is? 
Your observations are absolutely correct about the way that this case sort of scrambled a lot of people's political priors on this question. Um, prior to this, uh, there was this smaller scale debate happening in the background about whether the First Amendment bar had been set too high. There are two justices of the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Thomas um, and Justice Gorsuch, who have both signaled separately that they uh, have a, an openness to revisiting um, New York Times versus Sullivan and to weakening that standard, that is making it easier for people to bring suits against uh, the press. Um, one really interesting component of that argument, Justice Gorsuch in particular, had suggested that he was willing to revisit it because he thought that it was sort of uh, giving press organizations immunity, uh, that uh, although it was cast as a very high bar, what it really was a, an absolute prohibition, um, that it in effect made it so that you could never uh, combat large-scale lies against press organizations. And this settlement may well um, signal to the contrary, it's sort of the exception that proves the rule. One really important piece of this litigation is that Dominion at no point uh, argued that the constitutional bar should be lowered. Instead, throughout, it said, this is the rare case in which that staggeringly high constitutional hurdle can be cleared. And so we have this uh, sort of body of litigation evidence that suggests that um, when we cross this line into uh, sort of a conscious corporate decision to tell a lie, a liability might be possible. And I think that's an important data point for the wider conversation that's going on here. Charlotte, I find how America's ended up where it's ended up with the rules it has on free speech completely fascinating. I mean, if you go back and look at NYT versus Sullivan, you know, it was decided at the height of the civil rights era when the Supreme Court was extremely concerned about squashing the speech of civil rights leaders. And so came in with this very heavy 9-0 decision, which then sets this standard, which is somewhat anything goes in the US, right? Yeah, that's true. And I think the dissent from Gorsuch and, and Thomas is really interesting to go back and look at. Clarence Thomas has expressed his views on this on a number of occasions. And Neil Gorsuch, in a dissent in 2021, added his voice to those concerns. Both of them highlight just how much has changed since 1964. And Gorsuch, in his dissent, said, uh, you know, large numbers of newspapers and periodicals have failed. Network news has lost most of it, its viewers. With their fall has come the rise of 24-hour cable news and online media platforms that, that monetize anything that garners clicks. So they're explicitly pointing to this phenomenon of conspiracy theories. Justice Thomas wrote about the conspiracy theory that there had been a shooting at a pizza shop with the the alleged child sex abuse ring that involved Hillary Clinton. I mean, it, so it's it's very explicitly linked to conspiracy theories that proliferate in all numbers of ways in the modern media system and that the rules that applied in 1964 when there were a limited number of outlets that had lots of fact checkers, et cetera, is simply not the media landscape that we have today. And so a different standard needs to apply. Gorsuch and Thomas are not the only people who are thinking about revisiting NYT versus Sullivan. A few months ago, Ron DeSantis, uh, the Florida governor, and his allies in the state legislature introduced a bill that would remake libel law in Florida and is a pretty straightforward challenge to the actual malice standards set up 
by NYT versus Sullivan. And in that way, that might not be uh, catastrophic. Uh, as, as you guys know, uh, English libel law is a lot more onerous than American law. And that's a reason why we have to be so careful in what we publish uh, above and beyond what American news outlets do publish. But DeSantis does in many ways, I think, overstep uh, at least the draft of the bill that I read included uh, uh, presumptions that anonymous sources were false, and that would just that was just a dictate that was established uh, in the law, and a number of kind of questionable things that would certainly have ended up before the Florida Supreme Court, and uh, perhaps eventually the U.S. Supreme Court. But I guess what this Fox case shows now is that actually DeSantis's move might open up uh, conservative outlets that are friendly to him more to defamation lawsuits than its seemingly purported intent, which is to muzzle, to some extent, the mainstream, more left-leaning media. I don't have much sympathy for Fox in this case, but I would point out that serving the conservative audience is just really hard for conservative media outlets, because if you look at polling on Trust in News, Republicans trust Fox more than they trust any other news source but they trust it a lot less than Democrats trust media outlets. So Republicans, conservatives are just skeptical of of media outlets in general. Just over 50 percent of Republicans say Fox News is either somewhat or very trustworthy. So as I said earlier, Fox is nervous about losing its audience for for good reason. And uh, I think that that tension of building a successful business model, particularly in this environment where you might have uh, more scrutiny, more defamation lawsuits, you know, it it will be more challenging for them going forward, even if the culture doesn't fundamentally change. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see this play out because there's a really good chance if Donald Trump becomes the nominee, the Republican nominee, then Fox is back in exactly the position it was trying to escape from in November 2020. And that led to this defamation lawsuit from Dominion. Okay, guys, it's quiz time. And when I was reading up a little bit about the history of Roger Ailes, I came across in his book, You Are the Message, some advice, which I thought I'd pass on to you before the quiz. Ailes said, play to your strengths. Don't pick defense. Say what you want to say. Be emotional, not intellectual. Keep to themes. Avoid details. So with that in mind, the quiz this week, we're going to delve into the Fox News book collection. I'm going to give you the titles of books written by Fox News stars, and I want you to tell me who the author is. And to make it a bit easier, these are all by either Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, or Sean Hannity. Question one, ship of fools. How a selfish ruling class is bringing America to the brink of revolution. Oh, man. I think that's, that I think that's like Tucker. Tucker. Yeah, that sounds like Tucker. That is Tucker. You're one for one. Question two, let freedom ring, winning the war of liberty over liberalism. Laura Ingram. I'm going to go with Sean Hannity. It is Sean Hannity. Mm. 2-1 to Idris. Question three. Conservative victory, defeating Obama's radical agenda. I guess By now... process of elimination. That's... Yeah, exactly. Maybe Laura, but maybe these people are all really prolific. They have tons of books each year and make lots of dough. Okay, I need to commit to an answer, though. I, I think this one is Laura Ingram, not just by process of elimination. I agree. It's Sean Hannity again. He's prolific, that guy, or at least his offices. Question four. Shut up and sing. How elites from Hollywood, politics, and the UN are subverting America. Maybe that's Laura. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Shut up and sing. Isn't that from a pop song? Anyway, yeah, maybe Laura Ingraham. That is Laura Ingraham. Well done, guys. Unanimous. It's kind of funny because it's a Dixie Chicks. It's a Dixie Chicks line. Or now the Chicks. 
We love the Dixie Chicks or the Chicks on this podcast, as people who listen to our country music episode will know. Last question. Live free or die, America and the world on the brink. Oh, gosh. Sean Hannity. Sounds like Tucker. That one was Sean Hannity. A lot of these were Sean Hannity. He's, you know, his back catalogue is extensive. I lost track of the scores, but you guys did admirably. I feel like Tucker Carlson's the kind of guy who would have lots of boat metaphors in his titles. Do either of you know who wrote Killing Abraham Lincoln, former Fox News host? Killing Abraham Lincoln. Bill O'Reilly? Yep. That's uh, you win the bonus round. He has a whole killing series. Oh. Various assassinations. Somehow I missed it. If you've got a holiday coming up, there's some, there's some reading for you to catch up on. Okay. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Great. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Nicolas Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That means that more people can find Checks and Balance. You can get in touch with us via email. We really like receiving those. Our address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. 